0: Welcome back to Lawyers, Guns, and Money. I'm producer Jack Bryan. Last week, John Mattis' investigation into the secret and illegal war being conducted by the American government had stalled out, and the only person in the Justice Department looking into Mattis' claims is the same prosecutor who indicted Jesus Garcia, and this prosecutor is now threatening Mattis with an indictment of his own if he continues his investigation. Now... I'm going to pass you off to my fellow producer and our host, John Cryer. Thank you, Jack. I am John Cryer, and this is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Despite several setbacks, Mattis has been connected with world powerboat champion and cartel drug smuggler Jorge Morales, who also goes by George Morales. John
1: Kerry wasn't getting any traction. Not only were they threatening me, they were silencing Garcia, and this secret illegal war was grinding on in plain sight. So I felt that we were at the end, and it was wildly depressing. In June of 1986, Morales comes along, who was insistent that I would work for him. He adopted me, whether I wanted to be adopted or not. He found a way to call me almost every single day from prison and to point out to me What I knew about the network was only one layer of the network. And that the network was far larger because it encompassed the cartel, his cartel, his smuggling operation. And most importantly, he knew John Hull because he had employed John Hull and the CIA to protect his drug loads.
0: John Hull is the American rancher running operations for the Nicaraguan War from Costa Rica. He's also the guy who tried to kidnap John Mattis last week.
1: So it gave me a sense that, hey, maybe there is another direction to turn. Everybody else, the mercenaries talked about it, but they weren't trafficking. Garcia talked about it, but didn't want to put himself in the middle of any particular transaction. Morales was the first one to say, hey, I gave them three, four million dollars. I brought a load of 500 to 600 kilos on a flight. They protected it, and that's what I expected from them. To convince a cartel leader to speak out about the fact that he felt ripped off because he paid people a couple million dollars by protection. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but over time I was able to convince him that if he wanted any payback at all, he ought to just blow the whistle on him. And that's when Morales started going public and agreeing to be on television, agreeing to be a witness to John Kerry's.
2: He would hand over cash to whom? To the Contras. In, in what form? Pack it up in a suitcase? Yes, boxes, suitcases, box of cash. Yes. How much in the in one load? I mean, how much would you pack into a bag or a suitcase or a box? I don't recall. Thousands. Yes. Tens of thousands.
1: Yes. Hundreds of thousands. <laughs> yes. Uh, so George Morales was world powerboat champion.
2: for
3: overall
4: winner, George Morales, standing by with Dave Despain.
3: The race winner today, George Morales. George, they said it was smooth water out there. The deep bees shouldn't have been the hot setup and you ran away with it. How come?
4: Uh, that's right. We uh, we took the lead uh, 20 minutes after the start of the race and we didn't know what happened because we didn't see any more boats whatsoever. So it was a runaway for you then? Well, we didn't know what was going on.
1: He was worried that he wasn't gonna win the Key West race once, so he decided to make sure, even if he didn't win, that he would still have the spoils. So he bought every bottle of champagne in every liquor store from Miami to Key West. Had like 500 bottles of champagne, just to spoil the day. Then he has a bet with Copeland, the owner of Popeye's chicken chain.
5: Here's the boat that everyone is talking about. This is the Popeye boat from Louisiana. Al Copeland will be the driver of this monster of this midway.
1: So they had a bar bet, 500,000 cold cash, open ocean, nonstop to New York. We're going back racing again to just lay down another record. Now, the race was gonna cost them more than a million or two each to get there in the first place because they had to be supplied by helicopters. And they had to have spotter planes in front of them because in the open ocean, you hit a rogue wave and you're gone. But that was the race terms. And Copeland's co-pilot was James Kahn, the actor. He got there hours ahead of them. And the best part about it is when he stepped off the boat for the photographers, he put on his satin jackets that said, Miami to New York winner, George Morales. And he handed them out to everyone there on the dock. I mean, the beauty of being a world powerboat champion is you own powerboats and know the Bahamas and the routes back to Miami that are not as patrolled. So he was known in the powerboat world as world champion, and he was known in the cartel world as a full service provider of pilots, boats, and airplanes. He had started out, by South Florida standards, relatively small, but he branched into providing air services for other cartels and powerboat services for other cartels. He had 17 planes, along with his fleet of speedboats, So he had worked through the early 80s, marijuana smuggling, along with most of the cartel. Then he had shifted to cocaine. Then he actually had provided services for counterfeit quaaludes coming out of Colombia. He had helped ship millions of them for the Cartagena cartel. So he was indicted originally in 84 for smuggling marijuana. One of his pilot's wife, had been previously married to a Contra leader, to one of the Contra leaders. So he then meets them all.
2: Right after my indictment in March 1984, they came to my office. So you'd been doing business with the Contras? Yes. But all of a sudden, somebody bigger shows up at your office here in Miami.
4: Very, very big, yes.
2: What was the rank? What what level CIA person?
4: Well, he is the contact directly with the CIA in the Contras. He he worked for the CIA to the beginning with.
0: So, at this point, we're going to have to talk a little bit about America's war on drugs. Cocaine became illegal in America after World War II, and in 1948, America started its first overseas cocaine sting operations. In 1971, Nixon claimed drug abuse to be public enemy number one and declared war on drugs. While there had been an increasing problem of heroin use among soldiers returning from Vietnam, some have suspected other motivations in Nixon's declaration of war— one of Nixon's closest aides, John Ehrlichman, who would become famous for his connection to the Watergate scandal, put it pretty bluntly, saying that Nixon had, quote, two enemies, the anti war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders. We could raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. Unquote. The first real cocaine cartels develop in Chile in the late 60s and early 70s, and the country quickly becomes the world's biggest hub for cocaine manufacturing and trafficking until General Pinochet takes power. Okay, So, Chile was led by a democratically elected leader until 1973, when Nixon sees the country's turn to the left as a threat to America's Cold War politics and financial interests. Nixon backs a coup in the country, which eventually installs General Pinochet, who will lead Chile as a brutal dictator for 25 years. As one of Nixon's top priorities is the war on drugs, Pinochet pushes the drug trade out of the country. But that simply moves the cocaine distributors to a country even closer to America, Colombia. When Reagan enters office in 1981, he expands the war on drugs, establishing mandatory minimum sentences, civil asset forfeiture, and he has his vice president, George H.W. Bush, lead a task force to combat drug trafficking.
5: I believe the tide of battle has turned and we're beginning to win the crusade for a
0: drug-free America. Ronald Reagan's first lady even starts a campaign that will become perhaps the longest-running pop culture reference from the Reagan era.
2: Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no.
0: So George Morales' story presents a real problem for the tough-on-drugs administration of Ronald Reagan. And remember, the drug trafficking of the Sandinista government is a big selling point for Reagan on why America should support the Contras.
1: The Contra leader said, hey, we'll take care of your indictment. And by the way, you'll be able to use our protected airstrips and fly your cocaine Back directly into the United States. He donates to the Contras airplanes, and then he does and then they up the ante and ask him for money.
2: Morales was indicted in nineteen eighty four. He says the CIA used his indictment to pressure him into providing planes, pilots, and three million dollars in cash to the Contras.
1: In fact, the aircraft that he turned over were documented providing fifty-nine transport. Shipments of weapons from Ilipango directly into the northern front of John Hull's ranch and to other Contra bases in Costa Rica.
5: I was told
4: to send the planes with the supplies to his ranch, which we did. And we came back with some drugs from Costa Rica. with cocaine? Yes, we came out, we came back with uh, cocaine.
1: And his funding became well-documented because at one point along the way, he decided he was going to pay the Contras, but he wanted to make sure he had a receipt. Now, when a cartel boss asks you a receipt, you should know better. Uh, but I guess the control leaders didn't. He flies to Bimini, takes them to his private bank, takes a box of cash, and then says to them, I want to give you some cashier's checks also. For a couple hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to type out your name on the cashier's check with my name on it, and then he arranges on their flight back to Miami. He flies back through an airport and lands where they got to clear customs. They got to explain the box full of cash and the cashier's checks made out to the CIA-sponsored Contra leaders. Talk about a good receipt.
4: United States customs records show that in one trip, Morales and Contra leader Octaviano Cesar brought $400,000 back from the Bahamas. The declaration was signed by Octaviano Cesar.
1: And that's why he was able to prove categorically that the CIA's Contra leaders had received, give or take, a few million dollars from him, oh, plus a couple airplanes...
2: If you were to guess how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers for for drug money, how much would that be total in 1984, 1985, 1986? A lot of money. A lot Directly of money. and indirectly, a lot of money. Millions of dollars.
1: If you brought down weapons or brought down humanitarian aid to the Contras with the right level of introductions, the Contra leaders would hire you to run their cocaine into the United States on their protected flights. That was the way the operations were run. So when Morales flew his CIA protected flights of coke into Florida, he wasn't running his coke, he was running the cocaine of the Contras.
2: How do you know the CIA was aware of these drug planes entering the States? They actually saw the translation. They saw the drug transaction? Yes. You mean like unloading a plane full of coke? Yes. They saw that?
0: Yes. Now, you might think the line between trafficking drugs and partnering with people who traffic drugs is pretty thin, but the distinction is important to some in the CIA. Here's how former CIA director William Colby put it.
5: CIA has had a solid rule against being involved in drug trafficking. That's not to say that some of the people who CIA has used or been in touch with over the years may well have themselves been involved in drug traffic, but not the CIA.
0: And the problem when we're talking about illegal activity overlapping with covert action is it's kind of a black box. And also drug running in the CIA is a topic that has been rampant with conspiracy theories and overstatements. So let's contextualize first what we're saying and what we're not. So. It's important to understand why this overlap between covert action and drug smuggling happens and why it actually makes a lot of sense. The illegal drug trade is a massive international industry and it has amazing contacts and access to intelligence. This is how Jack Blum, the counsel for the Kerry Committee puts it.
6: If you sent me out of the country to risk my life for the government, to do something as a spy in a foreign land, I would think criminals would be my best ally. They stay out of reach of the law. They know who the corrupt government officials are and they have them on the payroll. They'll do anything I want for money. It's a terrific working partnership.
0: So in fairness to those involved in what is clearly a very illicit business, much of what we're gonna talk about was not done for the purpose of distributing cocaine or heroin, but the distribution of heroin and cocaine was being used for what was seen as a higher purpose. So, while there are endless stories about the CIA and drugs, we're going to confine this narrative to fairly well-established examples. During World War II, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, recruited and cultivated members of the American Mafia, including Charles Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky, who, at the time, are dealing in heroin. The OSS used them for their contacts with the mafia in Italy during the war, and also to prevent sabotage on American ports, which, during World War II, are largely controlled by the American mafia. Thanks to his help in the war, Luciano even gets his prison sentence shortened, but he still got deported to Italy. Also during the Second World War, to combat communism in China, the OSS works with opium smugglers who go on to form the Golden Triangle Heroin Ring, which runs the Asian heroin trade for decades to come. In 1947, the year the CIA started, the agency tries to combat the spread of communism to Italy, so it partners with the Sicilian Mafia and Corsican drug smugglers. The Corsicans and the Sicilians then work with Luciano to create what becomes known as the French Connection, a network of smugglers that become the main suppliers of heroin to Europe for decades to come. Then there's the most famous account of CIA drug smuggling before the Contras, the Secret War in Laos. This is Ronald Rickenbacker, an official for the Agency on International Development who was stationed in Laos.
6: I personally was a witness to opium being placed on aircraft, American aircraft.
0: During the Vietnam War, neighboring Laos was a neutral state. According to the Geneva Convention, no one could fight there, but the communist North Vietnamese broke this rule and stationed troops in Laos in plain clothes. They set up a path through the jungle known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail, Americans used this as an excuse to enter the war in Laos for themselves by financing, arming, training, and supplying a guerrilla army of 30,000 troops. These troops were mainly made up of members of the local Hmong tribe, a tribe in Laos that largely financed themselves through the growing and selling of opium poppies, the main ingredient for the drugs opium and heroin.
6: Growing opium was a natural agricultural enterprise for these people. And they had been doing it for many, many years before the Americans ever got there.
0: Soon, the Hmong are using the CIA's Vietnamese airline, Air America, to transport heroin. Because of the nature of our presence, this very intense American means that was
6: made available to the situation, uh, it, it accelerated in proportion dramatically.
0: And Madison, the Kerry investigation found even more examples. This is Jack Blum, a lawyer for the Kerry investigation.
6: We had problems in Haiti, where friends of ours, that is, intelligence sources, in the Haitian military had turned their facilities, their ranches, and their farms over to drug traffickers. Instead of putting pressure on that rotten leadership of the Haitian military, we defended them. We held our noses, we looked the other way. And they and their criminal friends distributed through a variety of networks, cocaine in Philadelphia, New York, and parts of Pennsylvania.
0: And remember how Honduras was being used as a staging ground for the Contra rebels? You have the case
6: of Honduras, where uh, the generals in Honduras were involved in the cocaine trade, where we knew they were involved and we knew that they were protecting a major player, a man named Ramon Matabalesteros. And instead of doing anything about it, we
0: actually closed the DEA office because we needed those Honduran generals. They also found it in Argentina, a country whose government was overthrown in 1976 by the American-backed Chilean dictator General Pinochet, as part of Operation Condor. Condor was a CIA-backed mission to eradicate leftists in Latin America. In Argentina, this operation produced a reliable American ally.
6: We had testimony from a man who was a civilian employee of argentine military intelligence and the argentines he said sponsored the cocaine coup in bolivia and then set up a money laundering operation in fort lauderdale and we later checked and indeed he had set up that operation and he used the money laundering operation in fort lauderdale uh, to provide funds to the Argentines all over Latin America who were in the business of, quote, fighting communism. We should remember that it was the Argentines who were the original trainers of the Contras.
0: And so, while George Morales's story of the CIA allowing cocaine shipments into the United States is shocking, it's perhaps not surprising. He then
1: said, I won't just say it, and that's when he introduced me to Gary Betzner, his chief pilot, who was, in fact, incarcerated with him.
4: There was an eight-month period in there where I did 50 trips uh, for George, and uh, I made $2 million, 40000 a trip. He's just a very charming, uh, witty, a nice guy to be around.
1: Who had been flying the particular loads for Morales that were, in fact, protected. He told me
4: he needed, had something for me to do that was very important. Did he explain to you what it was as best he could over the telephone? We were very cautious about the phone. And he said, if I would come back, that he could, I could be very beneficial in helping him uh, get out from under his indictment. Uh, he said that he had made a deal with the uh, CIA uh, to uh, supply them with uh, money and with assistance. But
1: more importantly, that he could fly his planes back into South Florida and be protected. And so that was the bargain he made with them. And on two different occasions, he took advantage of the bargain and took cocaine out of Central America back to the United States.
4: And that he uh, wanted me to fly some uh, guns and uh, ammunition and stuff like that uh, down to the Contras and, uh, and bring uh, some coke back. so. He gave me the rundown of the situation. It didn't seem to be too difficult. The first one was out of Fort Lauderdale. M16 guns. uh, There was some C4 explosive, you know, plastic explosive. I think there were some mines. You had to clear that was George, but I believe there were some uh, landmines or something there, I recall. I flew to Costa Rica to the ranch of uh, one Mr. John Hull. went directly to the Strip by uh, following landmarks. Uh, I landed, a taxi to the end. <clears throat> uh, he was there, all in uh, uh, some blond-headed guy, younger fellow. After the guns were unloaded, was something loaded into the airplane? Uh, yes, I loaded about 17 duffel bags and uh, five or six uh, two-foot square boxes in the aircraft.
5: What was in the duffel bags?
4: Coke. Cocaine. I estimated uh, around 500 kilos.
1: Was John Hull there while you loaded it
4: in? Yes, he was.
1: And on one occasion, landed the aircraft in broad daylight at a public airport and taxied the aircraft along with the cocaine load of about 800 kilos up to the front door of his office and unloaded it in broad daylight. But he was protected. Which amazed even his pilots
4: I always took george for his word i mean many times i was amazed at some of the things that he said would uh, take place that actually took place and i always uh, loved and respected george because he took me in and he trusted me when i was like an orphan you know and uh and through experiences uh, where you risk your life uh, in other people's hands you eventually learn to trust people and especially when you're handling large sums of money and you know in the millions of dollars and they're transacted and held in a parking lot and um it's not like uh the business world whereby you have to have contracts and, and then you still might get uh taken advantage of i mean our business was a business uh, where your word is your bond you know and uh he said if you have any problems when you come back in there'll be somebody uh to cover for you well, you know, if the customs uh, or DEA followed me and uh, when I landed the aircraft, uh, I wouldn't have any problems. I mean, I would, they wouldn't bother me. Had he ever said anything like that to you before? No. Had that been true of any of your other flights as a drug smuggler? No.
1: And then again, he was arrested finally in 1986 in June, and that's when I met him at MCC. But by the time I met him... He was outraged. He had been betrayed. I mean, this is a very plain-spoken cartel leader. He didn't just give away the money because he was that generous, gave the money for a good reason, to buy protection and to buy the end of his indictment that he was already out on bail for. And George, of course, because if you're a international drug smuggler, you know a lot of pilots. You know a lot of arms smuggling because eh, a little arms smuggling, a little cocaine smuggling, it all goes hand in hand. As I'm investigating and talking to more and more witnesses, it didn't stop. That was what was so incredible is that more pilots would show up if they eventually fell off the protected circuit. And he convinced pilots that in fact, I was someone to be trusted. And it wasn't just the Morales organization. It was a pilot who knew another pilot who had gotten a protected load for X, Y, or Z, whatever. And once my name was affixed to the investigation in South Florida, I started getting a huge amount of evidence and whistleblowers coming forward. I'm going to the newsstand in downtown Miami, and I'm buying a magazine. And guy goes, I know you, you're John Mattis. And this gentleman tells me that his part-time job is working as a ramp supervisor at the Miami International Airport. And his hobby was taking pictures of airplanes. And he said, you know, Those planes sitting in the dusty corner of the Miami airport, they changed the tail numbers and the color of the plane week to week. Well, that to me is sort of a straight up red flag. Well, it turned out the plane was, of course, working for the State Department, shipping, quote, humanitarian aid down. But the owner of the aircraft was a drug smuggler so people were coming out of the woodwork telling me things and told me about
0: general secord now i wasn't smart enough to make sense of it back then now richard secord's name will keep coming up and he is central to this story while general secord doesn't have a background in central america he does have a long background in covert actions in 1962 and 63 Secord flies Air Force missions over Vietnam as the American government insists, there is no war. By the mid-60s, he was detailed to the CIA to help run the secret war in Laos. While Secord claims he knew opium use was common among the Hmong. When they would move from one
3: place to another, they would carry their little uh, bags of opium. They smoked it, by the way, in Pipes. And opium could be bought in the uh, streets of any
0: village. He also claims he knew of no one who smuggled drugs and did not participate himself, but that would be somewhat surprising. Secord was one of the heads of Air America, the organization that is widely accused of helping Hmong leader Vang Pao smuggle opium.
4: Did you work with Vang Pao?
0: Sure, all the time.
4: What was your relationship?
3: I was his uh, supplier of air, therefore he um, stayed in close contact with me.
4: Were you in charge of supplying Air America planes?
3: Uh, for the tactical air operations, yes.
0: To cover this smuggling operation up, the CIA painted some of their planes and established a front airline that Vang Pao could use to hide the CIA's hand in his opium operation.
2: you know what the nickname for that airline was? No. Opium air.
3: I've never heard that before.
0: After the war, Secord was promoted to the rank of general, but retires when his career stalls after he's accused of being involved with a blacklisted ex-CIA officer, Edward Wilson. This is a super murky affair. Wilson gets convicted of several crimes, including illegally selling weapons to Libya at a time when Libya is under strict U.S. sanctions. Like a lot of weapons, like 20 tons of C4, which was equivalent to the entire U.S. stockpile. Wilson also trained guerrilla forces that carried out terrorist attacks. Now, Wilson claimed that he had the CIA's blessing, but the CIA denied having any contact with him during this period. Problem is years later, it turns out, there were over 80 contacts between Wilson and the CIA during this period. So who knows what he was doing or who he was working for? Either way, after Wilson's arrest, Secord is politically radioactive by association. He retires from government and goes into private intelligence and arms dealing.
1: Why did Richard Secord's lawyer show up in my office and threaten me about Richard Secord? Well, guess what, dude? I haven't been talking about General Secord, but now I think I probably should. Because you've come all the way to Miami, Florida to threaten me to not say one word about your client. Well, now I'm pretty damn interested in him.
0: So, one reason Secord's lawyer might be reaching out to Mattis is that Secord was brought into the operation by Oliver North to run the Enterprise, a private business that can act as a secret front for CIA operations hidden from any congressional oversight or accountability. A rogue CIA run out of the White House. And one of the Enterprise's operations is the resupply of the Contras. Now, this is how Secord describes the Enterprise. The Hakim he references is his business partner.
3: The enterprise is, is the uh, group of, of companies that uh, Mr. Hakim formed to manage the uh, Contra and the Iranian project.
7: Who controls the enterprise?
0: I
3: exercised overall control.
0: The logic being if Secord, a private citizen, executes the deal, it wasn't a government operation. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is how Senator Inouye put it.
5: Shadowy government with its own air force, its own navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself.
0: Secord saw this as a money-making operation, and his markups reflected as much. On Secord's first delivery, the weapons were priced at 1.6 million, but when Secord's fees got tacked on, the bill was 2.3 million. By the time the matter blew up, there were still $8 million sitting in Secord-controlled enterprise bank accounts. But still, questions linger about how the enterprise paid out more money to the Contras than it claims it had ever taken in. The Casey that Secord refers to in this clip is the CIA director at the time, William Casey.
2: They were getting a certain amount Thanks to you, through Switzerland, and many others, yes, and many others. But the war costs more
4: than that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea how much more it cost? Well, I
3: think uh, the, uh, Director Casey asked me a, a similar question in the spring of uh, '86, I think it was, and I told him that uh, I thought that the that the Contra effort would need a minimum of uh, ten million dollars over the next three months, over and above the monies that we could. Uh, apply.
0: This is Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco, the mercenary working with Mattis. And people say, well, what does drugs have to do with war?
5: It has to do with when the Contra-Aid was cut under the Bolin Amendment, the agency and uh, the enterprise or uh Concerned citizens, uh, any uh, semantics you want to use, uh, got into what they call creative financing. They needed money to keep their ragtag army going while the, the aid was cut off, vis-a-vis drugs. Drugs as international currency. And I was uh, approached myself in de- December of 1985 and offered $1 million cash to allow drug shipments that were contained in blast-frozen seafood to be shipped from Ramon, Costa Rica to
0: Houston, Texas. And as Kerry's staff and Mattis dig, they find another drug trafficker willing to talk. Ramon Millian Rodriguez, an accountant for the cartels. And he spoke of yet another front in the war, this time in El Salvador. Okay, so El Salvador is the country just to the north of Honduras. It's the smallest, most densely populated country in Central America. Ramon said his contact was a former CIA officer of no relation named Felix Rodriguez. You know, everyone says he's ex-CIA. Well, there's nothing ex about him.
7: You have a fellow who's a tremendous patriot like Felix Rodriguez, and all of a sudden he finds himself in a position where his troops are going to run out of money. I think it might have
0: been something done out of desperation. They had to get money, and they were willing to get it from any source to continue their war. Felix was an organizer of the Bay of Pigs invasion. He was the CIA officer present at the assassination of Cuban guerrilla Che Guevara. Felix is also closely tied to Vice President George H.W. Bush.
5: A February 1985 memo by General Paul Gourmand verifies that Bush knew Felix Rodriguez going back several years and that Rodriguez was assigned to focus on Nicaragua and supporting the Contra forces. According to Gourmand, Rodriguez, quote, is operating as a private citizen, but his acquaintanceship with the vice president is real enough, going back to the latter's days as director of central intelligence.
0: Bush's ties to the CIA go back to the 1960s, when the oil rigs of his first company, Zapata Corporation, were used as CIA listening posts during the Bay of Pigs invasion, and his father's company had previously been represented by the law firm of then-CIA director Alan Dulles. It wasn't until 1976 when bush is appointed as cia director that he became submerged in covert operations for bush felix rodriguez was a reliable asset and their close relationship continued through his vice presidency richard secord described their relationship like this
3: he was in touch with the vp's office uh, on a number of occasions i really don't know I, i've never understood their
0: Even after the discovery of several meetings between Bush and Rodriguez, which took place during the time of these operations, Felix claims he never spoke to Bush about drug running or the Contra operation.
7: Well, the only government mentions that he made was Vice President Bush. I was led to believe he was reporting regularly to the Vice President. The request for the contribution made a lot more sense because Felix was reporting to George Bush. Here, you have a CIA guy reporting to his old boss.
0: This is Jonathan Weiner, a member of John Kerry's staff.
7: And you have to remember John Mattis, the first notes that he had as public defender had references to the vice president's office, which was the head of the South Florida Drug
1: Task Force at the time. Remember, his son Jeb was a Contra supporter. So inside the Bush family,
0: they knew full well. While Jeb Bush will eventually become the governor of Florida, at this point... He is the chairman of the Dade County Republican Party. In fact,
1: Jesus Garcia went to see Jeb Bush to tell him about the arms shipment as to whether or not it was going to be condoned or sanctioned, but that everyone in South Florida knew. Jeb Bush knew. Bush Sr. had to know. And from the CIA, had to have the infrastructure within the White House itself as to
0: what Oliver North is doing in the basement. And here, in all fairness, we should say that while there is very little doubt that Bush would have been heavily involved in the gun-running aspect of this, Jonathan Weiner, Kerry's counsel, who we've been hearing from, thinks there's a pretty good reason why Bush might have possibly not known about the drug trafficking.
7: I I don't know what George Herbert Walker Bush's knowledge was or was not. It's not something that I was able to investigate and parse. I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that... um, in any government that I was ever in, there would always be efforts to protect principals from knowing things that weren't, weren't going to help them to know. The question becomes, uh,
0: are they being protected
7: from knowledge of criminal activity?
0: And the Kerry investigation finds that the U.S. government wasn't just accepting drug money, it was actually hiring drug traffickers.
7: What I couldn't believe is that after nine or ten months of looking at this, from January 1986 to October 1986, we really had proven that half a million dollars of money from the State Department went to a bunch of people who were engaged in drug traffic. So, for example, I found a newspaper article which showed that a company, Frigorificos de Puerto which is a Costa Rican a shrimp shipping company, had been selected by the State Department to provide uh, services to the Contras, including airlift. One of the principals of that country turned out was involved in the largest shipment of marijuana in Massachusetts history. So I'm having State Department contracts going to people who I have independent public information, are engaged in the largest marijuana shipment ever to my home state. And they're getting money from the State Department taxpayer funds to provide humanitarian support for the Contras. While the Contras are allegedly, according to our sources, involved in gun running and drug trafficking.
0: You couldn't make this stuff up, and we were finding it. And so Mattis and Kerry's investigation seemed to be able to document and prove that the CIA and the State Department had actively worked with drug traffickers to fund the Contra War. And with Morales speaking out publicly, the U.S. attorney in Florida, the one who had already been angry at Mattis for poking his nose in his investigation, is now, well, furious. So when George Morales starts talking about he's
1: taking arms shipments down illegally and cocaine back illegally. Again, they had to shut him down. And they told Senator Kerry and told anyone who would listen that he was totally a liar, not to be trusted. And about that same point in time, they decide to have him testify in front of her grand jury and being the kind of Cartel boss that he was, he found that disrespectful. So he was dragged in front of a federal judge. The prosecutor tells the judge, Mr. Morales ought to talk to us in a grand jury room. He's been talking publicly, and we want to hear him say it under oath. And he turned to the judge and said, Judge, most respectfully, I don't trust those men. They are dishonest and corrupt. I will only speak to the United States Senate thank you, and good reasons perhaps not to talk to the same prosecutors who had covered up the whole thing. They would have framed the questions to exculpate themselves. They would have framed the questions to protect John Hull, to protect the CIA, and to protect the Contras. And it all was behind closed doors. George Morales was more than willing to submit to public questioning under oath in front of live cameras. The level of outrage in that courtroom just went through the roof. They couldn't hustle him into a solitary confinement fast enough. Uh, So George Morales was held in contempt so that his sentence would go on indefinitely.
2: Morales is currently in contempt of a Miami federal grand jury for refusing to testify. He and his lawyer say U.S. attorney Leon Kellner didn't want to hear his contra claims a year ago because of political pressure and that Kellner won't let DEA and Customs interview him now. The U.S. attorney has not returned a repeated phone call.
1: And by the time they put him in solitary, it was too late. It was now enough evidence and public pressure to trigger an official investigation, which was a really big step forward this has
0: been jack bryan and this has been john crier please join us next week as the Contra story blows up in the news and threatens to take down the president
1: was he supplying the iranians the iraqis or all sides of the wars in the mid-east but again there were colorful characters in the miami federal prison
5: I walked into a room full of Secret Service agents and FBI agents. They had been informed that I was going to assassinate the President of the United States.
7: Let me tell you, MFers, you better stop listening to a Senate investigation because when we get to the bottom of this, you're going to be the ones going to jail, not us.
1: And so the United States government had to start distancing itself from this thing. It was the public spectacle.
0: If you want to listen to the next episode ad-free right now, go to lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Sign up and also hear bonus episodes where we dive deeper into Mattis' story. Sign up now at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com.
7: Lawyers Guns and Money is a discount sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Additional research on this episode by Rebecca Schiffman. Due to licensing constraints, a couple of the archived clips in this episode are reproductions. Special thanks to Dennis Bernstein for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Terrell. Special thanks also to Ian Masters for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Blum. Copyright 2023. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.